Google searches for stock bubble are at an all-time high. Bitcoin prices fell 28% last week, and we can't tell you why. The old rules for valuing companies are under some serious stress. We got to get back to basics. We got to get on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back, educated investors. 2021 is not waiting for anyone to catch up, and we've got a busy show ahead. We'll get you ready for the week, and then we go deep with the professor of valuation, Oswath de Mordoran. He gets on board, and he pulls no punches as everyone from Warren Buffett to active fund managers and the Fed take some shots. And then our investing term of the week to get you off on the right foot. Let's get set up for the busy week ahead. After a flurry of executive orders last week, President Biden is expected to fulfill a campaign pledge Monday by detailing his Buy American plan. The Buy American plan Mr. Biden espoused during the campaign called for tightening existing rules on government procurement by raising domestic purchase requirements and closing loopholes available for the purchase of foreign products. It also called for spending $400 billion in government procurements, which would boost demand for American products and services together with Biden's clean energy and infrastructure investment projects. You better believe the Buy American plan will be watched very closely by other countries, especially America's biggest trading partners, who Biden has promised to mend fences with. His canceling of the Keystone Pipeline project last week sent a chill up north as Canada was caught off guard. It's a big week for corporate earnings here in the U.S. with heavyweights like Apple, Microsoft, and Caterpillar set to report results. About half of the market cap of the S&P 500 will deliver report cards this week, and companies under the microscope include General Electric, Boeing, and Tesla. Shares of Tesla are up 733% in the past year, and CEO Elon Musk will be making big promises on 2021 vehicle deliveries. Some analysts are expecting as many as 875,000 vehicles to be pledged for delivery on Tesla's earnings call. On the COVID vaccine front, investors will be looking for positive data from Johnson & Johnson on its single-shot vaccine. J&J reportedly hopes to have enough vaccines for 100 million Americans by April. It's also studying a two-dose regimen, but just one dose generated an immune response in more than 90% of the participants in an early clinical trial. Keep an eye on the sports betting market and stocks around it this week. Michigan became the latest state to legalize sports betting last week, and legislation is building for legalization in states including Texas, New York, Massachusetts, Georgia, and Ohio. Will it be legal in time for the Super Bowl on February 7th? There's a reason stocks like Penn National Gaming and DraftKings are up several hundred percent in the past year alone as expectations are on the rise. Speaking of games, the rabid fan base behind video game retailer GameStop is taking things very serious lately. There's a battle between notorious short seller Citron Research and loyal GameStop traders who have congregated on Reddit. Shares of GameStop surged 85% last week and doubled the week before that. Last Friday, trading in the stock was halted at least four times as it surged 50% in one day. More than 193 million shares were traded last Friday, marking the most active day for the company since it went public in 2002. It's up another 48% Monday morning, and there's no news moving it. Citron Research, the short seller who called out GameStop, said it will stop commenting on the stock following the actions, quote, of an angry mob last week. In a letter from Citron managing partner Andrew Leff, he said, quote, We are investors who put safety and family first. And when we believe that this has been compromised, it is our duty to walk away from a stock. End quote. Yep, that's pretty serious, and bringing people's families into a battle over a stock is uncalled for. 
The Federal Open Market Committee of the Federal Reserve will meet for the first time in 2021 and for the first time under the Biden administration. Don't expect any changes to the overnight lending rate. The Fed has pledged to keep it right where it is until 2023. But are Fed governors getting worried about inflation? A lot of other people are. Will the Fed keep buying $80 billion worth of corporate and mortgage bonds every month? That's been keeping the safety net under capital markets. What can the Fed do about unemployment and racial and income inequality? We know it's worried about those issues, and justifiably so. We'll get the Fed's decision and a press conference with Fed Chair Jerome Powell this Wednesday. The past two years have flipped our classical notions of how to value companies upside down. 2020 brought us the parabolic rise of the stay-at-home unicorn stocks, but it also lifted the valuations of several companies like Zoom, Peloton, and Tesla to extreme heights, causing all kinds of wildness among our animal spirits. Oswald de Mordoran is considered by many to be the wizard of valuing companies. He's a professor of finance at New York University's Stern School of Business, a best-selling author, a widely quoted expert in financial media, and our very special guest today on the Investopedia Express. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So many of us and our listeners have grown up with classical ways of valuing companies like the price-to-earnings ratio or price-to-book ratio, which Warren Buffett favors. But when we have disruptive events like we did in 2020 with the pandemic, and we have this stay-at-home economy suddenly exploding and lighting up these companies like Zoom and Peloton, how do we need to adjust our thinking as investors when it comes to, to actually valuing these companies? Let me take issue with the word valuing there. If you use a PE ratio or price to book, you should never use the word value for what you've done. You've priced a company. There's a big difference between valuing a company and pricing a company. Pricing a company, you look at what other people are paying for similar companies, you attach a multiple to your earnings, your book value, your revenues. You can, you can apply it to any multiple to price a company. That's what investors have always done. It's an extraordinarily lazy way of putting a number on a company. Think of why. You're taking last year's earnings, so you're trusting that that is indicative of what your company can make. You're looking at where other people are paying for similar companies, and I'm going to put quotes around the word similar. You have no idea. You made a judgment. And then you say, you know what? Other steel companies traded 15 times earnings. My company made $15 in earnings last year. 15 times 15 is 225. I've priced the company. You know, I have a very simple rule in investing. If you bring nothing to the table, expect to take nothing away. For decades, this is what a typical portfolio manager brought to the table. And then they wonder, hey, how is it that we're not meeting the market? To value a company, you need to understand the business, which means you've got to project out what the business model is and growth and margins and risk and reinvestment. And already you can see there's no reason why a company that's losing money couldn't be worth a lot. Right? You take an Airbnb, they could be losing money last year, but they have a business model that's going after a huge market. So the first thing is, when people say, well, everything we've done doesn't work, it stopped working a long time ago. What you're getting in the last two years is red lights going off saying, guys, you got to stop and rethink how you do things. So I think it's a good wake up call because I think this has been going a while. Portfolio managers have, they're still in the 20th century. They need to move on. 
you talk and you teach price versus value, which is exactly what we're talking about. And a lot of these companies, especially the ones I describe it, pick any big company from the last 10 years, so much of their assets are intangible, right? It's an intellectual property. It's in technology. It's not in cement plants. It's not in big manufacturing plants. So there's an experience aspect to it and a different way of thinking about it, which you teach. Expand on that a little bit more, especially with some of these, the biggest companies that have come on the scene in the last few years. I know accountants have drawn this line on tangible versus intangible, but I'll be quite honest. Accountants shouldn't be allowed to do valuation. They're incapable of doing it. I mean, they're incapable because of their training and their makeup. And here's why. It's not the tangible versus intangible that troubles us. And I'll give you an example. If you could take a Pfizer or a Merck, you can value it using traditional approaches, even though the bulk of their assets have always been intangible, right? Patents. What troubles us is not tangible versus intangible, but investments you've already made versus investments you expect to make in the future. That troubles us because it's uncertain. It's not even that it's physical versus non-physical. A Tesla might invest in physical plants, but it's going to be investing in the future. Uncertainty scares us as human beings. And whenever you're faced with a company where everything lies in the future, your reaction is there's too much uncertainty I cannot value the company. Therefore, I cannot invest in the company. Extraordinary dangerous logic here. Because just because it's uncertainty doesn't mean you can't value the company. It means you've got to make your best estimates and you're going to be wrong. So what? Everybody else valuing Airbnb is going to be just as wrong. Make your best estimate. This is my big issue with all-time value investing. You know what I mean by old-time value investing, right? You make that trek to Omaha every year. You pray at the altar Warren Buffett. Come on, you've got to give the guy a break. He's 90 years old. Let him go. Let him fade away into the sunset. He was a great investor. I'm not contesting it. But he's not done a thing in a decade. In fact, you know, all this talk about, hey, you know, Buffett bought Snowflake. Buffett hasn't made a stock pick in the last few years. And he's been open about it. He's picked his own know whoever's going to run the firm after him, the Todd Combs or whoever else is. I mean, I'll, I'll put out a challenge here if you're a Buffett follower. I'd like you to go to Omaha next time they have a physical meeting, assuming that the, the old codgers show up again, you know, Buffett and Munger, and they do their little spiel and they all act like, oh, I don't know what's going on. I, you know, I'm just in Omaha. I want you to get up and ask Warren Buffett this question. What does Snowflake do? And then ask him a follow-up question. Assuming he makes up some stuff because he is capable of making up stuff. What is its moat? You talk about these competitive advantages with companies, the Coca-Cola's. What is its moat? And then ask the final question. Can you show me your valuation of Snowflake that led you to invest? I'll be quite honest. I think Berkshire Hathaway bought Snowflake because they were sick of being left out in the cold and everybody else having fun. They wanted to play a momentum game. And if you're going to do that, stop giving me this preachiness about value and how you care about value. Because this is, I think, where value investors are right now. They've reached a point where they either re-examine what they do or they have to keep losing money. The market has shifted and we have seen that shift, but I can't wait, to your point, to go to Omaha, sit in the Nebraska Furniture Mart, 
drink a shake from DQ and ask Warren Buffett those questions because I'm sure he would have some interesting answers. But you bring up a very interesting point. You said recently that markets always convey messages. And if you ignore those messages or you think you're bigger than the market, the market's going to take you down several notches. And this is about the humility we need to have as investors. But so hard in a year like 2020, where we saw the, the fastest bear market in history, the fastest recovery in history, and then valuations. We saw prices for some companies skyrocketed. It was really hard to go wrong as an individual investor in 2020. But what what were you thinking about when you said those words? My point is, anytime you look down in the market, use words like bubble, speculative, shallow. And I've seen people use this to describe investors. I think you make a mistake because once you use those words, you're saying these people are crazy. I don't have to try to explain what they do because they're crazy. When I look at a market or a price or an investment, the question I've got to ask is, what am I missing? I could conclude that Bitcoin is overpriced and Tesla is overvalued at the end, but I cannot start with the presumption that people have gone crazy because once I start with that presumption, I'm not asking the right questions. So you can disagree with markets, but you got to respect them. You can think that something is overvalued, but don't prejudge the people who pushed up the value. Ask yourself, what is it that I might be missing? And after your analysis, you might decide this is not for me. But then don't go around wagging your finger at other people who are making money in the stock saying, you've gone crazy, you're doing the wrong thing. It's their money. What business is it of yours if people are buying Bitcoin or Tesla? It's not your money. Walk away. Stop being so judgmental about other people making money because that is the basis for frustration. And then you start to do stupid things like doubling down and trying to show the rest of the world that they're wrong and you're right. Right. The the behavioral aspect is so important as investors. And you're right. It's not like we have to go buy it or if the market seems expensive, okay, back off. It's your money, your plan, your risk, your financial future we're talking about. And it's part of being in the financial media. And we see it every day because it is kind of like this race every day to the market and how it's going to do. But at the same time, it really comes back to the individual. You mentioned Bitcoin. You mentioned cryptocurrencies. Obviously, you know, they've been on one of their phenomenal, mysterious, but historic runs with their usual, you know, five, 10% daily swings lately. Big money is behind it from an institutional perspective. We know that to a certain extent. But how should everyday retail investors think of it if they're thinking about adding it to their portfolio or starting to build positions in something that doesn't have a lot of the same rules that we've grown up with around other assets? First, you've got to, dis- no, first you've got to, Bitcoin is not an asset. It can either be a currency or a collectible. You can't invest in Bitcoin. You can only trade it. And here's the reason. It has no cash flows. It's like asking, what's the value of the dollar? There is no value for the dollar. There's an exchange rate. There's a price for the dollar. So the question is, is the price you're paying for Bitcoin justified? Now, I asked this question three years ago, and my framing of the question remains the same. If it is a currency, is it a good currency? Let's start with that question. The essence of a good currency, it's a good medium of exchange a good store of value. Those are the two things that we use. The Swiss franc is a great currency. I can pretty much use it anywhere in the world. The Indian rupee, not so good. The Venezuelan bolivar, horrible currency. What I'm trying to say is just because a currency is a fiat currency doesn't make it good or bad. Currencies go from really good to really awful. The question is, where in that spectrum does Bitcoin fall? And I'll tell you my pet peeve with Bitcoin. 12 years after it was concocted or invented or whatever the right word for it is, how many transactions 
I'm not talking about the buying and selling of Bitcoin to make money, using Bitcoin to buy goods and services. How many transactions are Bitcoin denominated? The answer is surprisingly few. I keep getting told by Bitcoin advocates that sooner or later, I'll be able to buy my house with Bitcoin, my car with Bitcoin, my lunch with Bitcoin. I'd love to buy a pizza with Bitcoin. Forget about all this stuff. And I can't do that. And there's a reason for that. It's an incredibly inefficient currency. Why? Because if you do a Bitcoin transaction, it's got to be checked to make sure there is Bitcoin in your digital wallet that you use. And to check it, a Ukrainian miner has run a computer for 20 hours so that I can buy a Starbucks coffee. This is no way to design a currency. And who wants to use a currency where the price of the currency keeps shifting by 100% in an hour? You could be using something that could be worth twice as much or half as much. No wonder it's not played a role as a good currency. So it's not a good currency. So the question is, what is it? Is it like gold, a collectible? You know why gold has had the staying value that it has? Because it holds its value and financial assets melt down. That's why. It's not because we expect gold to double every year. Gold, on average, has increased by about 2% a year for the last 400 years. But why do we like to hold on to gold? Because when our financial assets crumble because of inflation or crises, gold holds its value. So I was open to the possibility that maybe Bitcoin is millennial gold, that if you're 35 years old, you don't want to hold, hold gold. That's for your grandpa your, or your dad. You want to hold Bitcoin. And here's the problem with that argument. Last year was a perfect test for the Bitcoin was a crisis asset. Between February 14th and March 20th, stocks lost 35% of their value. Gold went up 3%. It held its value. To pay. Bitcoin was down 50%. In the next seven months, stocks came back by 50%. Bitcoin was up 80%. Bitcoin in 2020 behaved like a very risky stock. So if you're holding on to Bitcoin, my question is, don't tell me you're holding on to Bitcoin because it's made a lot of money in the past. Tell me what purpose it serves. Is it a currency, in which case show me the transaction, or is it a collectible, in which case tell me how it's behaving like a collectible. And if it's neither of those two, what the heck is it? That's where I am with Bitcoin right now. I'm not going to tell people that they're crazy because I know why people are paying 32000 for Bitcoin. They're hoping to sell it to somebody else for 40000 It's become this speculative game. And that's not a good place for a crypto to be. You've got to serve a real role. And that's what I'm looking for is what is that real role for Bitcoin? So the institutions that are rushing to get behind it or make sure that their clients can put it in their portfolio or trade it or buy it in an ETF, they are chasing the hype along with it? Or do they see a future that you and I don't see today? I think you're assuming that institutions are run by sensible people who think deeply about what they buy or sell. They're followers. They're no longer leaders. You think those guys, the portfolio managers in Boston and New York are getting ahead of the game? They're chasing the market. There's a reason why active investing has acquired a bad name. It's precisely for this. Because these institutional investors are motivated by one thing and one thing alone, greed, which is they feel they were left out. And one of the things about institutions is they tend to jump in way too late. They can't even trade right. Because by the time they actually catch on that something is rising, it's already too late. The institutions didn't get in. In March of 2020, when Bitcoin was at slow, you know when they got it? 
November, December, January, when Bitcoin is already up. Institutions are classic contrarian indicators. If they're jumping in, my suggestion is if you're a trader, jump up. Fascinating. And taking swipes at Boston and New York money managers and the, and the good folks in Omaha, but, but you've been watching this for a long time. It's not like this is, there's anything new, except it's just a new shiny thing in a lot of ways, but it's been around a long time. Looking back at 2020 and the madness of 2020, was there a stock or sector that surprised you the most in terms of how it behaved or how we behaved as investors as we chased it? So many wild examples, but was there one or two in particular that just made you sit back and, and just hold your head? I'll give you a divide that I use for companies. I divide companies based on life cycle from young companies or startups, growth companies, often losing money, their future lies in, 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 in growing. And mature companies, the bulk of the assets in place. In a typical crisis, 2008, 2001, 1992, young companies bear the brunt of the damage. If you remember the last quarter of 2008, young companies imploded. For a simple reason, for a young company, you need cash to keep going. You need to raise capital. And in a typical crisis, risk capital dries up, venture capital money, IPOs, the kind of money you need to keep going. So when this crisis started, I expected something similar because that's what's always happened in a crisis. This was an extraordinary crisis in one sense. Risk capital stayed in the game. Venture capitalists continued to invest money during the worst days of the crisis, IPOs actually hit an all-time high last year. Investment in below-investment-grade bonds continued as if there were no crisis. There was something different about this crisis. Again, it's easy to say, hey, people have gone crazy. But something about this crisis set it apart from all previous crises. So what does it mean? Young companies actually did much better than older companies. Tech companies, especially younger tech companies, did much better than old manufacturing companies. And in fact, if you want to go head to head, Airbnb gained at the expense of Marriott because they were young, their future, and they still had access to capital. That to me has been the defining feature of this crisis is why risk capitalists stayed in the game. And again, don't look for the easy answer. The Fed did it again is what I hear. The Fed is not that powerful. Much as we'd like to believe that there's an interest rate room in New York where Jerome Powell goes in and set interest rates, the Fed does not set interest rates. In fact, the only rate the Fed sets is the Fed funds rate, which is the rate at which banks can borrow overnight. It doesn't set the table rate, your mortgage rate. Does it influence it? Yes, but less than you think. It has a margin can move rates, but doesn't set rates. So if you're investing, saying, oh, the Fed will keep rates at 1%, stop. In terms of that investor behavior, in terms of consumer behavior, what do you think will be some of the trends that stick the most going forward based on given what we've been through in 2020? I think the biggest issue is whether we all go back to work the way we used to, which is for most of us, five to six days a week, you get in your car. If you're in most parts of the country, you commute into work, you park in a parking lot, you pay the parking lot for a monthly permit, you go into work, there's an office. I think a lot of companies have realized that they can get by with you coming in three times or two times. And definitely that you can have your meetings without flying to London and spending $10,000 for a round trip and staying at a hotel. So I think the way that big chunks of the economy are run is going to change. And that's going to have really serious side effects. 
Especially, I mean, I'm terrified of what commercial real estate will look like coming out of this. All those office buildings that are half full, all those parking lots in cities that are designed for a commuter life. What happens to that? I know residential real estate has done really well. That's why we've kind of not seen the underbelly because, you know, commercial real estate, we've kind of pushed the problem away into 2021 and 2022. But that's going to be one of the mountains climb because if commercial real estate is in trouble, banks are in trouble because that's who they owe the money to. If banks are in trouble, the rest of us are in trouble. So to me, the thorniest part of this process is how this plays out in office space and parking and commercial real estate and what the ripple effects of that are going to be on the rest of the economy. I totally agree with you. And it will be fascinating to watch. There was before 2020 and there's after 2020. And there's so many things that we are going to learn about how we've changed in ways we don't even realize right now. But I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Oswald DeMortarin, professor at NYU, best-selling author. And folks, follow him on his blog, on Twitter, and on your YouTube channel where you have some great lessons. We really appreciate you joining The Express today. Thank you, Kevin. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart about the investing term the educated investor needs to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Rajesh, and Rajesh suggests free cash flow. We like that term, given that it's earnings season and we're learning about just how much free cash flow our favorite companies have generated over the last quarter. Rajesh will be getting the always stylish and super smart Investopedia socks for their suggestion this week, and you can too, by DMing us on Instagram or Twitter if we choose your term. According to Investopedia, free cash flow represents the cash a company generates after accounting for cash outflows to support operations and maintain its capital assets. Unlike earnings or net income, free cash flow is a measure of profitability that excludes the non-cash expenses of the income statement and includes spending on equipment and assets as well as changes in working capital from the balance sheet. You know who's got serious cash flow? Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft. They collectively generated more than $200 billion in free cash flow in 2020, according to our pal Michael Batnick of Ritholtz Wealth, and collectively those stocks have a $7.8 trillion market value. Free cash flow among those companies should grow close to 20% this year. That computes to about 33 times free cash flow for some of the best businesses ever created. That's not cheap by any means, but it's actually well short of the Nasdaq's valuation in 2000. We're going to let Warren Buffett take us out this week, especially after Professor DeMortarin threw a little shade at the Oracle of Omaha earlier in the show. Here's the legendary investor in a 1985 television interview talking about how he actually values companies, irrespective of price. Prices don't tell me anything about a business. Business figures themselves tell me something about a business, but the price of a stock doesn't tell me anything about a business. I would rather value a stock or a business first and not even know the price so that I'm not influenced by the price in establishing my valuation and then look at the price later to see whether it's way out of line with what my value is. Buffett and his partner, Charlie Munger, have a pretty good track record over the past 50 years or so. But as Bobby Dylan likes to say, the times, they are changing. But you stay true to you and stay smart and safe this week. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you back on the tracks in February. 